The biggest international festival for the business of podcasting is back. The Podcast Show London will bring together thousands of podcast creators under one roof on the 22nd and 23rd of May. Also featuring major industry players, global brands and some of the most iconic voices in podcasting. Plus creator meetups, networking and an evening festival of unmissable live shows. Passes from £89. Book yours now at thepodcastshowlondon.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 72, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And you know, actually, it is so nice to be in a cool air-conditioned studio tonight, isn't it? Oh, God, it's so hot. I was in Skeggy earlier, playing on some arcades, actually, and uh, we came back to Nottingham and it was just, like, stuffy and horrible and none of that CA. (laughs) I was walking in a bit earlier on. Just that smell of summer and like barbecues kind of wafting across the air. It was pretty nice. But Are you sure those weren't your legs wearing shorts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't see the sun very often, I've got to admit. Uh, but, you know, I think we're much more at home where we are right now in a darkly lit room with the glow of computer screens on our face. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but that said, I was out and about last weekend at Revival 2017. Oh, that sounded so good. I was so jealous because you went on the Saturday, didn't you? And it was all kicking off. Well, it was uh, my car's broke at the moment, so... My missus give me a lift over, and also Joe, Alex and Rich, a couple of our other mates in there as well. So this is like, you know, four dudes stuffed into a little Ford Fiesta. Yeah, and they're quite big dudes. <laughs> it was so, quite yeah. a snug journey, I've got to say. <laughs> I was kind of sat on Alex's knee for most of the journey. I did bring my Nintendo Switch for them. We were having like a Mario Kart and a Tetris tournaments all oh, the way nice. there as well. So that was kind of fun. Then when we got there, though, I mean, you know, we've been to Revival a few times in the past. But this is definitely the busiest show that I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, because usually we go on the Sunday, but this was on the Saturday, and yeah. I think it's growing and growing, this uh, revival event as well, as others like Play Expo. and. So. Well, the thing about it is as well, I mean, we did say that we were going to be there, and we saw messages on our Facebook, people going, oh, you know, we'll be there as well. It's always hard to know how many people you're going to meet at these events, but I've got to say, I'm not exaggerating when I say I maybe met about 40 listeners. That's amazing. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, you know, we pump this show out, and we see numbers come back, but we don't see people. Yeah. And kind of having that reaction is just fantastic. It is weird because you're right. I mean, we sit in this little studio here, you know, we're talking into like a microphone in yeah. front of us each and it's like, but then when you actually get out and meet people and, you know, I, I met guys who'd come over from like Poland and Ireland and places like that and they were like, you know, yeah, we we'll listen week in, week out. I listened to one guy, I listened to like 60 of our shows back to back on a across Europe road trip recently. Wow. So uh, he must be sick to death of our voices by yeah, now. Yeah, that's dedication. <laughs> but when, you know, people, oh, I love that story you were talking about or that guest you had on and, uh, you know, actually... One of the comments I heard quite a lot when I was there was, more Amiga. Oh, wow, this week's show is going to definitely deliver, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, now, uh, I'm sure you've read the show title already. This is a big one. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But obviously, if you did come over and say hello at Revival, it was amazing to meet everybody who took the time to come over and shake my hand. And Joe and even Samantha got recognised a couple of times. Wow. Don't quite know how, but yeah, it's always very cool. So amazing to meet everyone who was there. And uh, obviously, keep an eye on our website. There is going to be more events we're going to be at, including uh, Blackpool we're going to be at in July. Blackpool, yeah. Um, also, I'll be going to Amiga 32 in Germany. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'll also be going to Amiga Island as well in uh, 2018. I'm sure we'll come around very quickly. So uh, (laughs) we'll obviously put all of those in our Facebook page as well. And speaking of people who support the Retro Hour podcast, we always want to give a massive shout and show our appreciation to people who take the time and also make donations into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. Because, I mean, we do have a little tip jar. That's the way that we like to think of this, isn't it? A tip jar. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, we don't mind paying for this show out of our own pockets because, you know, we, we did it for at least the first year. And obviously doing this, I mean, you know, we, we have costs like, you know, SoundCloud, premium subscription, website hosting, all mm. that kind of stuff. But, you know, the way we like to think of it is if you want to just put a couple of dollars, a couple of euros, a couple of pounds into our tip jar, that obviously 100% goes back into the running of this show. It's completely optional, but, you know, it's really appreciated. Yeah, so. and it just takes the pressure off. Yeah. You know, I just think, oh, I'm not going to be panicking about the podcast or thinking I have to pay for the podcast mm-hmm. as well as pay for my bills, you know. Yeah. So. You, you have to, you've got important stuff to buy, like, you know, alcohol and... Amigas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for your support. This week, making donations and making the Retro Hour Hall of Fame... Gusta Bolidis. Andrew Webb. Retro Pluggers. And also Neil Mansell, who all made donations this week. If you'd like to do the same, all you've got to do is head to our website, theretrohour.com, click on the PayPal button, fill in your email address, it'll take you a couple of seconds, or donate anonymously. I recognise that name, Neil Mansell. Yeah, now he actually um, wrote to us recently, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, so this is Amigos magazine. Now... I've mentioned the Amigos podcast before. It's a really good American-based podcast, but this magazine's pretty cool. They have a free PDF that you can download, and they have like sections like the retro charts, so you have what was going on in that year, but they also have retro prices, so you can kind of look at the old hard drives when they were like 400 quid each. For a 20 megabyte hard drive. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) stuff like that. And they're going to be doing their 100th episode. So there's going to be a special coming out, and uh, we're going to be interviewed in it. So Now this is, um, if you haven't heard of Amigos, I mean, this show is kind of a bit of an Amiga special, um, and the Amiga, Amigos podcast is all about Amiga. And it's such a good listen as well, actually. I really enjoy their shows. Yeah, they're great, because they have, like, the two main guys, which are Anthony and John, mm. but they also have about five or six supporters behind there that will be, you know, kind of creating content, but they'll also be doing Let's Plays on their YouTube channel and stuff. So it's really a big community. And they pretty much, I think they're as busy as us, Dan. They pump them out every week. Yeah, yeah. And Well, this magazine they do as well. I mean, you know, Neil's actually written to us and we were kind of doing a bit of an interview for their, uh, you know, special for the 100th um, episode as well next month. So as soon as that comes out, um, <laughs> we still need to finish the questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think Ravi's writing a novel, aren't you? <laughs> That's it, yeah. Hundreds of paragraphs. <laughs> so uh, we'll obviously put that in our show notes as well at theretrohour.com and a link to their podcast. Now this week, speaking of the Amiga, we've got a rather big guest this week and I think it's fair to say this guy is by far one of our most requested guests. And he's spilling all the info on the future plans of Amiga. And the guy is Dave Haney. Now, Dave Haney, obviously, I mean, anyone who knows the Amiga scene or Commodore knows who Dave Haney is. One of uh, Commodore's most, you know, epic engineers. Big name in the Amiga scene. Worked at Commodore from, like, the mid-80s. Worked on originally the Plus 4, the 128. Also worked on the Amiga 500. And also the big box machines as well. You know, the ones that we used to... Well, I used to drool over in the magazines. You used to have them. Yeah, I used to have them. But Dave... He was there till the end. You yeah. know, he was there in the factory when it closed down with a video camera filming it all. Commodore's and, last day. Yeah, amazing. Now, we're going to get the stories of really, you know, Commodore from the 8-bit era up to like the last days and kind of beyond, you know, the stuff that he was working on. I mean, because a lot of people might not realise this, but when Commodore went under, they had a machine like a prototype that was going to be another CD-based system, you know, the, the follow-up to the CD32 that was really about as powerful as a PlayStation. Yeah, and this was all being developed and they all just canned it. Yeah. Really bad. But, you know, he was doing this R&D into the future, so you're going to find out the future plans of Amiga. So Dave Haney is going to be our special guest on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. And speaking of the Amiga, um, there has been a rather cool 
CD32 compilation released recently, which is four decades of demos. Have you ever used these CD32 compilations? Yeah, they're amazing. It's The way they do it is they kind of rework them all so you can do it all with the CD32 controller and they give them nice menus and it's like it, it looks like a commercial product. Totally, and this has all the menus, but it's got four decades of Amiga demos. Now, this will have a lot of the classics in there, and a lot of these demos I've not actually seen running on the CD32, so, yeah. you know, this might be the first time you see them, but they have the modern stuff, so they have a whole section for 2017 with all the latest Breakpoint entries, and you can watch them on the CD32 as well. It's fantastic, a really nice piece. Well, there's uh, over 300 demos on this CD. Yeah, it's crazy, and they're all kind of categorised in different sections, so, you know, you can go by year, you can go by group, you can go by genre. That's nuts, isn't it? And, I mean, I'm looking, you know, what they do when they release these, they always do nice covers, so you can actually print them out and put them in a jewel case and the CD label, so... Even that, you know, looks like a professional, like, you know, commercial release. And you've got all the classics on here, like State of the Art and, you know, Spaceballs, uh, Fairlight, Melon Design, all that kind of stuff on here too. But like you said, you know, maybe more recent stuff that people haven't seen. And there is that AGA exclusive um, demos on here, some of the original, like, late 80s kind of stuff as well. I think, you know, this is by far the most comprehensive Amiga demo pack ever. And this took them over a year to make, apparently. Yeah, and also... Uh, I found another thing is when you're burning these games and you've got the menu systems on them, sometimes they have this fancy music or fancy graphics and you've burnt it at the wrong speed and it takes blooming ages to load it. You know, it'll go... Remember, it's like a one or two speed drive on the uh, CD32. This one, bam, you hit restart, just get straight onto the menu, hit it, demo goes. It's really nicely done. Well, you know, we've obviously done shows all about the Amiga demo scene before, and I think anyone who's maybe got an interest in it, because um, obviously, you, can, you know, you can use this disc and emulation if you've got like Amiga Forever, for yeah. example. Dead easy to do, isn't it? You just drop the, the ISO file in, it'll load up. But it's a really good way, you know, to introduce yourself to the Amiga scene, or like Ravi said, there maybe demos that you haven't seen before. Because I mean, <laughs> you know, we've been Amiga fans for decades. I probably haven't watched 300 Amiga demos. Yeah, no, I've, I've probably watched like the top 20 yeah, repeatedly, so yeah. And not, I mean, the thing before is you'd have to write the floppy disks and all that, and it was like a bit of a chore, oh, wasn't it? Oh, God, nightmare, yeah. So that's really cool. We'll, we'll put a link to that if you want to. You can just download it, burn it, or uh, like we said, load it up in an emulator, and you'll find that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, seeing a new game for a classic system is always really cool. And have you heard about this new puzzle game for the NES? Now, no. This is called uh, Eskimo Bob. Eskimo Bob? <laughs> no, I've never heard of this. Well, this, I mean, it looks really cool. It's been going on Kickstarter uh, for a couple of weeks now. It's, only, it's got about two weeks left on this. Um, 181 backers at the time of recording this. And it's a series of um, Eskimo Bob was like these flash cartoons that used to be on, do you remember like Newgrounds? Mm. That website yeah, back Newgrounds in the Newgrounds was amazing. It was like one of the really early kind of experimental meme flash places. Yeah. I remember seeing some pretty sick stuff on there back <laughs> in the days. You know. Well, this looks a bit more family-friendly yeah. uh, than released on a Nintendo system. But Eskimo Bob was like a flash cartoon that was on there back yeah. in the early 2000s. So the guy that's made this, I mean, he kind of, you know, had a bit of a special place in his heart. And also, I mean, you know, the guys who made the Eskimo Bob-like cartoons, they were big Nintendo fanboys and they'd always put little references to Nintendo and stuff in there from back in the day. So what he's done is he's actually turned this into a game for the NES. Well, for the NES, these graphics look really good. 
It kind of reminds me a bit of like later NES releases, you know, like kind of the Super Mario 3 kind of era, like late 80s. So yeah. it, it's obviously a system where people have kind of figured out how to program it and get the best from it. Uh, the good thing about this is, though, it's um, 64 levels, um, two playable characters in here as well, uh, 15 different enemies in here as well. It's got, um, you know, password system. The thing about it is, though, he's actually finished this game already. And the only reason he's doing the Kickstarter is to get the cartridges and boxes and all that printed up. Oh, and these cartridges are really nice. They're white ones. Yeah. And they've kind of got custom printing on them. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. And it's going to come with like a 20-page manual and also a little uh, mini-comic as well in the style of like the old Flash animations. Oh, really so. nice. And is this project done well? Oh, it's fully backed, so yeah. Yeah, well, actually, you know, the only one is 7000 uh, Canadian dollars. Um, it's over 15000 already. So oh, well, uh, yeah. And it's still got a fortnight left. He's going to be producing carts like a madman. And there's actually a little demo you can download and play the emulator, or, you know, if you've got like an EverDrive or whatever, if you want to give it a little try. So I think it looks awesome. Though. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of puzzle games anyway, and kind of something that's... Uh, Obviously, this guy was a fan of both Nintendo and these Eskimo Bob cartoons. So you can tell it's from the heart. It's obviously a project that he really wanted to work on. And it's cool when you get kind of like, you know, other people rewarding you for doing that. And, you know, that passion kind of pays off. is really cool, I think. Yeah, it's nice. Now, speaking of uh, Nintendo and the Amiga, there's a bit of a crossover. Never thought we'd see a Zelda game on the Amiga. What, what, what? A Zelda game? Well, this is Zelda Return of the Hylian. Ah, this, this looks insane. Um, how come this works on the Amiga then? <laughs> I'm confused. <laughs> well, this game is actually like a fan-made Zelda game. Um, okay. It came out on the PC a while ago. I think it was written in like, like SDL and C++. Uh, but it was kind of open source as well. So someone's done a port to the Amiga now. Obviously, this is not like a, you know, a typical kind of retro game. It's you know, like a modern retro game. Mm. So to run this, you do actually need quite a powerful Amiga. And the same really, if you want to run it, you need a vampire. Okay, we'll talk about the vampire in a sec, but first I want to encourage everybody to download this as soon as possible because we know what Nintendo are like with copyright. <laughs> so download it and spread it. Well, this has actually been, like I said, it is a fan project and it's been around for a couple of years anyway. So, okay. But like you said, I mean, you are using Nintendo's IPs. So, yeah, I mean, it could go at any time, as we know with past Nintendo projects. Apparently, though, even with a vampire, it's not quite optimized for it yet, so it still does run quite slow. Uh, but I think just the fact that you can play such a nice-looking Zelda game on the Amiga at long last is a bit of an achievement. Well, I'll explain the vampire for people who haven't heard of it. I'm sure you all have because you're listening now, and it's an Amiga special. But the vampire is basically acts like a vampire, so it sucks the blood of the Amiga and kind of takes control, you know? It, you, make it, you make it sound so nice. Yeah, <laughs> but but it becomes the host. Yeah. And... You strap it onto the CPU, and it basically transfers all the power to this FPGA. And your Amiga basically is like 100 times faster. Yeah, and there's lo tons of good stuff. Now, they were they were releasing these um, cores, yeah. and the kind of cores, they had a, f a few things messed up. Like, we had them, and we couldn't get the HDMI uh, to output AGA and stuff like that. They needed to yeah. update it. So we'd have a separate monitor and a separate HDMI. Because at the moment, if you want to do like, you know, you, you look at the like Amiga workbench through the HDMI port, but if you play a game, it comes out the Amiga's like normal video port. Yeah. So you need two wires and two inputs. Two wires and you'd either have a remote control and you'd be switching the input manually on your TV or you'd have a big fat Amiga monitor like I did and a big fat LCD screen <laughs> next to each other and it was just such a complex setup. Well, they're releasing a new core update and it's going to fix that. So this is the uh, the Gold Core 3. 
Yeah, and they've shown basically all the games being pumped through the HDMI. So it's not just a workbench, mm-hmm. it comes out in a PAL screen mode. Which most Amiga games were PAL anyway. Yeah, and it's got a few nice little updates. So it will do, you know, CRT monitors used to have those scan lines in yeah, them. Yeah. yeah, it will add them if you want. And it's got a faster IDE as well. So it will increase the transfer speeds between the compact flash and the Amiga. So your games will load faster and, yeah. Yeah, and the operations will just run a lot smoother. I think I've seen some benchmark and it transfers something like, you know, 9.3 megabytes a second, which, like, you know, I remember, like, someone had, like, a really high-end Amiga and, like, they, they had, like, four megabytes a second. They were like, wow, that's crazy back in the day, but... Yeah, I know. I think this one's up to seven yeah. a second, but that's still okay. insanely yeah, fast. Absolutely. And this is really good because they're developing an AGA version mm-hmm. for the 1200, and this is going to be kind of... It's like the building blocks of the AGA version that they're implementing all of this. You know, I kind of thought when the Vampire Project would start, they'd make the 600, they'd get a few orders, and then they'd just, like, drop support for it, and they'd concentrate on the 1200 version. But they seem to be living up to what they kind of promised. I know there is quite a big waiting time on Vampires. There's still some people that ordered them, like, last year that haven't got them yet, but I know they have, like, kind of made some changes to the... Um the manufacturing process recently, and they're trying to get them out there. And, uh, you know, we've had vampires, like, for about a year now, and it's just cool to see continued support, so... And we were really early adopters, yeah. and what they've said is they've basically, they've got professional manufacturers yeah. now. So, I think it's when the 1200's going to come out, there's going to be a massive demand. They've already got, like, you know, loads of people inquiring, so they're going to need to have this kind of manufacturing company, because they can't do it in a in a garage anymore. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, so it is awesome to see new Amiga development. And actually, we're going to find out, you know, we have Dave Haney on in a couple of minutes' time what he thinks of the Vampire Project Ooh. as well. So it'll be nice to get his thoughts on that. Now, before we get to Dave, um, it's always nice to get a bit, bit of Sega news. And did you hear this recently? Sega actually revealed their kind of, they called it the Road to 2020 plan. No, I didn't know this. What, Sega are planning ahead? Well, kind of. I mean, they're actually looking at their past Ah. To plan their future, you may say. Now, they didn't really give away too many details, but they did a bit of a... It was like a press like announcement, um, a press conference that they did. And also they released a PDF, so if you want to scroll through it, it's like about 25 pages. Most of it's pretty boring, to be fair. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. It's kind of like cash and pyramids. and uh, Very corporate. Yeah, very corporate. But there is one really interesting bit in there where they're actually saying one of their kind of main strategies for a revival of their company and, you know, to see them through till the end of this decade is by reviving, and this bit's in quotes, a revival of major IPs. Oh, that's good. So what they're going to be doing... It's kind of anybody's guess. But, I mean, a lot of people have been talking about, you know, games from the past that are not out anymore, like Columns, we were playing that the other night in the cafe, weren't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Columns was a good one. And, oh, there's, there's tons of sites. Streets of Rage. Golden Axe. Golden Axe, yeah. I mean, you know what I was thinking, though? When I read this, I know there have been kind of attempts at doing Sega kind of compilations and stuff on the Xbox and PS3 and that kind of thing. And a lot of kind of these classic games don't really make the transition to new systems that well have to try and do them in 3D. I think there was like a, a 3D attempt at Golden Axe once, maybe on the PS2 or something. I might well, have made that up, but I remember it being crap. Well, stuff like Sonic Mania as well. Maybe mm. just stick to the 2D and just do it really well. Yeah. They, they might do that, you know, we might get a new Streets of Rage or something. Well, you know what I was thinking would be the ideal platform? Nintendo Switch. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
But would they let Sega? Well, well, I mean, you know, Sega have like an exclusive deal with uh, Nintendo for a few Sonic games anyway. They have for a couple of years. You know, that one that came out on the Wii U, for example. And uh, Sonic Mania is coming out on the Switch as well. And I just, you know, we've talked about this on the show before, that on the the Switch's eStore at the moment, 50% of that is old, like, uh, Neo Geo games. Mm. So if, like, Sega could maybe update some of their classic franchises... The Switch would make a really logical platform for that, I think. Yeah, that could be really good, and I'd love to see some of the old Sega stuff come back. It's going to be an interesting time, and I think they've probably seen the amount of interest they had in Sonic Mania and been like, oh, actually, there's something up here. Yeah, and also the NES Mini. They might be you know, getting them going, ooh, yeah. beat their interest. I think that's really quite positive news, actually, because I think they're going to get a lot of fan support for doing that. Yeah, and you know what? The one franchise I want releasing, it's not Sega, but... It would be Road Rash. Road I, I imagine Road, Road Rash yeah. nowadays, where you could jump on people's bikes and kick them off. Oh, it'd be so good. Yeah, there are so many possibilities for updating these, you know, classic games. I think there's a secret to doing it, though. You've got to kind of do it quite subtly, but it's mm. got to feel like the original game, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Or you just go totally out there and do a different game, but that never really works, no. does it? Then everyone complains about it. It's yeah. nothing like the original. So, but I think you know, looking at what Sega have got planned with Sonic Mania, I think they're probably on the right track. Oh yeah, definitely. So, Fingers crossed. We'll keep you up to date if we hear any more on that. So thank you for checking out episode number 72 of the Retro Hour podcast. We'll be out again next Friday, your little treat before the weekend. And now, one for the Amiga fans this week, the guy that we've been trying to get on this show for about 18 months now. We finally got him on. Here he is for the next 45 minutes or so. Dave Haney is this week's special guest. And we'll see you next Friday. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is a pleasure to welcome this week's very special guest. Welcome to the show, Dave Haney. Hi. <laughs> nice to have you joining us, Dave. I think we tried to get this started, um, I don't know, half a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> the best things are worth waiting for. Yeah. Well, we're going to get some amazing stories from your time at Commodore and working on uh, you know, legendary systems like the Amiga. Uh, but first of all, I thought it would be quite nice to find out a little bit of background on you. I mean, where did it all start for you then? What was your first ever computer experience? My first ever computer experience is kind of funny. It was um, so um, ba- back in 1972 or so, my dad brought home this Texas, I'm uh, not this Hill Packard calculator that was the size of a whole stack of laptops. The thing must have weighed 40 pounds. And uh, <laughs> and he brought it home to do his uh, taxes. While it was there, I started messing around with it. And there was the NIM game on a magnetic card. It read these little magnetic cards. The calculator actually had core memory, so it would keep whatever you had in it when you turned it off. Um, and I got really bored with, with the NIM game, so I started learning how to take the code apart. I was writing programs on the calculator, and eventually I got my dad to bring home a uh, terminal every weekend. And this was one of those... TI Silent 700 terminals with a big roll of thermal paper, and he let me dial into one of the Bell Labs computers. Um, at, he worked at Bell Labs, of course, so mm-hmm. he ran a department there, and they had a Cyber 72 computer, something like that, that I could dial into and program, teach myself basic and Fortran, which uh, wasn't that easy at the beginning because we didn't have any. He, he hadn't got me manuals until I'd been using the thing for about a year. You had to figure it out like yourself then. Yeah, well, you know, and every version of Basic had slight. You know, it was sort of a few of the things were the same, and then like all the string functions were different depending on which dialect you used. So it was it was a matter, and there weren't enough programs there to take apart and study. So a lot for for a while, I was kind of had my hands tied, and then eventually I got the uh, manual which had all the Basic commands, and I was off and running. I bet that was um, a great day when you got the manual. 
It was pretty good. Um, then in uh, in 1977, so I, so this was so I was like 12 or 13 when I was teaching myself to program, which is a whole lot easier for today's 12 or 13 year olds to do. <laughs> um, uh, you can just you can just you can you can write C on the web. I just discovered that the other week. Uh, you can do all kinds of stuff, but uh, back then it was a little tricky. So in 1977, um, my best friend had just gotten a, an inheritance, and he decided he was going to buy a computer. And uh, we went to uh, the island of Manhattan. You might have heard of it. Mm -hmm. And there was one computer store, and it was actually re not really a computer store at all. It was basically one build, one office in this building, and one end of it had Apple IIs with 4K, and the other one had Commodore Pets with 8K. And he ended up buying the Commodore Pet, and so that was really the first personal computer I programmed on a regular basis. Well, what was your first system that you got for yourself then? Your first personal computer you bought? The first personal computer I bought was actually a system that almost no one's ever heard of called an Exidy Sorcerer. They, they sold about 5,000 in the U.S. and I heard about 15,000 in, in, in Europe. And Exidy was this video game company. They were kind of like, they had this, sort of the same idea as Atari, but not as successful. And they were on the West Coast. So almost all the computers they sold were sold on the West Coast. I was like, with, I was I was like one of the only people on the East Coast to have one of these things, and um, I had I actually wrote a bunch of things for it and tried to sell them. And I I had two tapes of software at uh, Creative Computing Software. I sold to probably ten percent of all the people who had ever bought one of these machines in the U.S. But Creative Computing didn't distribute overseas, and so I made a little bit more money in my first programming my first my first startup company my first self-employment than i did washing dishes uh the previous summer <laughs> so that was the kind of start of your career in the it industry that was that was the first thing i did that actually made me some money in computing the interesting thing was uh so that was 79 i went uh, the, later that year i went, went off to college um and i met a guy who had written a couple games for the trs-80 and I was paying for his first year of school. <laughs> so it was a little different. <laughs> it must have been quite an exciting um, time, though, that kind of early personal computer era. It must have felt, felt like I'd been at the cusp of something that was, you know, really magical. Yeah, it really was. I mean, it was hard to get stuff. Like, so I had, you know, I, I mean, because it was expensive. I mean, the, the computer I bought that came with 16K of RAM ran over a thousand bucks. And um, I ended up expanding it. I was amazed that I, I eventually found a place that had uh, another 16K of DRAM. They had sockets on the board that I could get for only 1995 plus shipping. <laughs> <laughs> it came in aluminum tubes. They didn't even use conductive plastic because that stuff was so easy to kill with static back then. But that was it. And then I went on to college and I was programming uh, in, uh, I, was le I learned Pascal my first semester and I was programming uh, you know, on, on big computers, which were actually a lot more similar to the ones I was using at Bell Labs, though I had not yet used a, uh, a Unix computer. I ended up using one of those over my one of my summer jobs. Um, and I kind of knew what it was because um, there was this thing that happened when my, my now Bell Laboratories in Homedale was was the largest building in like that whole region. They at, at their peak employed 10,000 people there. And um, they had their own uh, phone exchange, but it, was, it wasn't enough for all the computer dial-ups they had. So they had all these internal switchboards. So you'd call a number, and it would give you another number. And at one point, they moved his computer to an internal switchboard. And so I couldn't get to that computer, and I was waiting for my dad to figure out where they put it. Because, no, I mean, there were so few people who actually used these in the department that he just didn't know. Um, so I was, I was basically, I, uh, sort of, uh, like many people did kind of, uh, 
invented my own process, which is a thing eventually that became to known as came to be known as war dialing. Yeah. Where I was just dialing and dialing and dialing the any anything that was in uh, the two hundred one nine four nine area, you know, uh, area, trying to find another computer. I eventually did. And, you know, I found some dial tones and sometimes a person would answer and I just quickly hang up. <laughs> um, that was before they had things like uh, um, caller ID, of course. Um, but anyway, it was so I was trying to dial in and I eventually found a computer and made found my way in. Now, you know, it's it sounds like, oh, you know, I hacked into a Unix system, but they didn't actually use passwords yet. <laughs> and, the, you know, the, the, the login names are things like Joe. So you you know you type somebody's name or you could type games and log into the games account and so I I was I I was figuring that system out and I I eventually learned how to pr- print out manual pages so I had this whole Unix manual or at least what all the stuff I could find by spidering through the various commands um, printed out on thermal paper you know you're talking like you have more of a software kind of background at this stage I mean were you doing like you know electronics as well at the same time yeah, I had I had actually been I had started in electronics before the computers came along. Mm-hmm. I was basically doing. I mean, I made radios, I made digital clocks, I made all the things that you can make. I, you know, I learned to I learned to make my own circuits. I, in fact, when I got the Exidy saucer, I didn't have a monitor, but my mom had gotten me a uh, black and white TV the year before. Back then, you could drive down to a uh, a radio supply store, and in the back they had this this warehouse of filing cabinets that contained these things called Sam's Photofax, which was basically a schematic for anything. That ever existed and nice. sure enough that i had this hitachi tv and i got the schematic for the hitachi tv and found where their composite video was on the motherboard on their main board and then built my own little uh transistor amplifier with the fastest transistor i could get at radio shack and um added essentially a composite input to the tv with which had this i had this big old frankenstein switch on the top to switch the tv to from its tuner to the external connector so I could, you know, so I could watch. I, it wasn't very well, uh, I, I should have put in like a little, a, a nice little well-designed push button, but I was just going through, the, you know, the bag of parts that I had because, I mean, I was, you know, 17 and didn't have a big income. <laughs> <laughs> so after you finished college, what was kind of your first full-time professional entry into the industry? Okay, so what happened was I, I went out of college, right out of college, I started working at General Electric in Philadelphia. And General Electric had... Got brought everybody in by showing us uh, all these great things about space shuttles that they were working on. But almost everybody there was working on weapons. And once I once I got there, I mean, I didn't get a security clearance or whatever. I was just I was working on this. I was I was assigned to this group called computational design. There was this thing at General Electric at the time that basically put this huge brick wall between hardware and software. And if you were a hardware person, you weren't allowed to touch software. And if you were a software person, you weren't allowed to touch hardware. And I got there and having done both since I was a kid, thought this is the stupidest thing I ever heard of. Um, But the computational design group were the only people who could do either. So they gave me this weird job of working on a on a compiler and a bunch of library systems that all hooked together that was used for simulating hardware. But I, I got out of there pretty quickly. It was just it was just such a Dilbert zone. I mean, it was like we had 50 people reporting to the same person. Of course, there was no, uh, you know, there's there there were none of these online things that everybody uses today. So I was I got a newspaper from Philadelphia and went through um, a filing, uh, trying to see if any of these any of the headhunters that advertise weren't demanding like two years of prior experience. Found one, sent off my resume on a Tuesday. Thursday, they called me at work, and. Uh, wanted me to come in for an interview and i was i was kind of rebelling against uh general electric that day because everyone everyone there was uh like they'd started out all looking like college students and they were sort of gradually like disappearing into the background with the same tie-in 
you know, in, in bit work shirt and everything. So I was actually wearing this black homemade shirt <laughs> and they called me out to the interview and it's like, well, I'm going to the interview, but I'm going to be wearing this black homemade shirt. It wasn't a bad shirt. It was pretty good, but you know, it was homemade. Um, and, uh, I, uh, I got to, uh, I got to the interview, met this John Lennon looking guy in the, uh, in the, uh, um, lobby and we started talking. He's like, you're here for an interview. Yeah. And I'm like, how about you? And he says, yeah, kind of. And we got to talking about stuff and this and that. And then I went to, uh, I went, I went in, they called me in and I met this guy, Joe Krizuki, who's a typical, uh, you know, business guy in a suit. And, uh, then they set, put me in the second room. Uh, and there was that guy, John Lennon looking guy who turned out to be Bill Hurd. And, um, he asked me a few questions, like if I knew about Laplace transforms and he showed me a, he showed me a, a op amp circuit with a diode limiter on it and asked me what that was. And it was like, you know, a few things and like, okay. And, um, it worked out good. And on Monday they, they had, they had me over for a, a plant trip and gave me an offer on the spot. And, uh, you know, that was Commodore. Two weeks later I was working for Commodore. And what kind of projects were you initially working on then? He brought me into uh, work on the uh, um, on the plus four that that well it was really we just called it TED it was the TED project it was the the the, the TED project was actually started because Jamo I mean because uh, excuse me because Jack was getting scared of the uh, of the um, Sinclair um, that Timex was bringing into the U.S. as well as selling in you know throughout Europe because he you know that was a hundred dollar computer and we were selling a five hundred dollar computer at the time and. According to Jack, we were always supposed to have the best price, um, and you could make a Commodore sixty four for hundred to sell for hundred bucks. So at that time, anyway, I think if near the end when they were making them, they were like thirty five dollars complete in a box. But uh, you know, back then they were they still cost a bit to make. So the uh, the idea of the TED was it was a it was a all in one graphics and sound and everything chip that you just need to put next to your your uh, seventy five oh one. <laughs> or whatever processor you happen to be using. So, um, you know, there, there actually was a version of that um, called the Commodore 116 that looked kind of like a, a, a Sinclair, only it had a rubber chiclet keyboard instead of the membrane keyboard. That, the, that was kind of a surprise because um, we were working on the, uh, we were working on a couple versions of it in the U.S., but the Japanese office had just started making a whole bunch more for for no one really knows why they made that one and they made the uh they they had a, a thing called the the C232 which was which was a which is basically cuz the, the original the one that got that came out as the plus 4 was originally called the 264 the 232 was just like the 264 except it had half the memory and it didn't have a, a modem slot which is like not saving anybody any money but a lot most of these never even made it to market um we also had one actually the first system i was in charge of um, which was called the 364, the CV 364, which was a essentially just the plus four with a with an extra wide keyboard that had a keypad on it, and um, it had uh, Tragic Voice built into it or a yeah. version of that. So it had speech synthesis, synthesis, but unfortunately, it only had a few. It only had like 250 words, so it was really tough in the lab when I was working on it and testing the voice thing. And some, some idiot, you know, usually one of the techs would, would fire up uh, Sam on the C64 and just start cursing me out. And I had to respond with curses that were made up of this 260-word vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> it just didn't work. 
that actually showed you what they should have done with that product and you know and given it that kind of vocabulary using that speech chip but it was just it was one of those things it was just it was one of those ideas that somebody had come up with and i got handed it off and then a couple weeks after i got it, it it was canceled but i did all the timing analysis and everything like that for the for that system in fact it was all on a big uh big mylar sheet the official uh, timing for ted was this one you know big mylar sheet and every time we you know every time i made different calculations i'd get there with my eraser and my technical pencils and and change it around and that was something that uh i guess i was more bill wasn't that comfortable doing and i was like oh yeah it's pretty easy so we worked out really well and then of course we we both ended up doing the uh, 128 well, that was quite an interesting system. Um, who was that aimed at then? Which which kind of customer? Um, it was really just sold as an upgrade to the C sixty four. I mean, that had, that's something that had been called for for a long time. They'd had three other tries, and none of those were very successful. And they they were always there was always going to be some compromise with compatibility and everything. And you know, we kind of set down the rules that we were you know we were going to be compatible with as much as we possibly could. In fact, um, one of my jobs was running through every single piece of hardware that plugged into the Commodore 64. And if it didn't work on the 128, figuring out whose problem it was, <laughs> we ended up changing some signals that went out to the user, to the, to the, uh, not the user port, the, uh, the, the cartridge port simply because, um, some of the sloppiness of the C64 turned out to be a feature. Everyone, people were make were doing things they shouldn't have been doing, but you know, by making this change, we made a whole bunch of other stuff compatible. So we ended up having to do it. And of course we even had weird stuff like, um, they fixed the font in the 128 to make it a little nicer looking and that broke software. There was um, this, I think it was an island graphics program that, that like uh, some paint program, and it come up with this splash screen where it was, it would draw some stuff using its own tools, and it was, it would write its name out by reading the our, our character ROM and, and writing the expand, making those really large and writing them out. And originally on the 128 and C64 mode, when it went to dot the I, the I's dot had missed. By, had moved by one so it ended up flood filling like the entire screen <laughs> oh, wow. and then the next thing that came along was messed up and so on and so on and so on so it took um a good 20 30 minutes just to get into the program uh, so it turned out that roms were really not that expensive by then so we ended up having two character sets in the c128 um which the highest address line in that rom is connected to the c64 c128 line which tells you what mode you're in and so when you go into the C64 mode, you get a slightly different character set so that all that stuff still works. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, that's, that, that tells you just how hard it is to change any damn thing on the C64 and expect it to still work. <laughs> what was the uh, culture like at Commodore at the time? Was there much partying? There was. I mean, we worked like madmen and we partied like madmen. I mean, it really, it was, you know, it was... I mean, you know, we didn't we didn't do too much partying during the week, but Friday afternoon we, you know, and then over the weekends and usually at least in the summer, there'd be somebody would have a party practically every weekend because we were all in our 20s and we didn't have kids and that sort of thing. So yeah, it was it was it was good. I mean, you, it was kind of that, you know, I was I never really lived in uh, South Jersey until I moved there after um, after Commodore. I mean, my mom lived there, but I, I didn't really live there. Um, so I didn't really know anybody. Um, so, I you know, it started up at Commodore. It was like that's where pretty much everyone I knew was at work. And then we hung out together. So it was really, you know, it was it was all voluntary. But, you know, I mean, I had a few college friends come by from time to time. And if, once in a while, some of them lived in the area. But, you know, Commodore was kind of it. So <laughs> you can imagine when that went under, it was like, 
um, kind of a shock. Though, strangely enough, there's a bunch of Commodore people working with me still today. You know, obviously, before um, the Amiga was released and uh, Commodore bought it, I mean, did Commodore have any plans for a 68K machine of their own before the Amiga? No, Commodore was working on, on, a, on a system using the Z8000 processor. It was a 16-bit machine. That was actually one that had, been, that had failed through a couple teams. And the, the, at the time Commodore bought Amiga, that final team... Which was uh, which consisted of Bob Wellen and George Robbins were actually getting it to work properly. They had redesigned a bunch of stuff, and um, so what this was, it was a it was a 16-bit machine with um, expandable system, but that you actually stacked cards on top of each other, um, kind of like the PC 104 bus, more as as I recall it. I didn't I don't remember it that well, but you um, it had a Z8000 processor, which was a you know which was a 16-bit processor with it, it, they had it running an operating system called Coherent, which was a Unix clone. I'm not sure what the resolution was. Roughly a megapixel, uh, you know, single pixel display that did windowing. It had its own windowing system uh, that was written by this guy Rico Tudor, who eventually did the first version of the windowing system for uh, Amiga Unix. Really, really fast, really basic. Um, this because this was like before X really caught on in the in the Unix industry either. Mm-hmm. It was just you know that was it was a way to run different shells and windows and everything. But I mean it was it was essentially a Commodore version of a Sun two, and that that sadly got canceled when uh, Amiga got ta- got bought because um, Commodore just decided we didn't have the resources to do both of them. Well, when did you first see an Amiga? First time I ever saw an Amiga was actually at CES um, in nineteen. 19- 84 when we were introducing the Commodore 128. The Amiga guys were there. We were talking to them, but it was all behind the curtains, right? They didn't show anything publicly, but they did a, uh, a demonstration. So right before we, uh, right before we went out to uh, CES, this was, CES was, of course, in early January. So things were always screwing up between Christmas time and New Year's. And um, we, got the, uh, we got these 8563 chips and the 80 column chips in. And they didn't work. Um, I had played around with one just poking and peeking and discovered that if you wrote to it twice, it kind of worked. So anyway, Bill was building this uh, this um, PLL tower. I was going through probably thousands of these chips along with the head of uh, Ted Lenthe, the head of, uh, of Commodore uh, Chip Engineering, and selecting a few, cherry-picking a few that could actually work at all because they had other problems but this is just the main problem that and we had the problem too that that the operating system couldn't even power up if the 8563 chip wasn't working so we we ended up with these golden units but some were more golden than other if you if you tuned it in just right and you got lucky you had this nice 80 column display and everything worked we had very carefully decided which c128s were going to be used for which things once we got to the show of course marketing people were turning them off they were running other stuff on them. And I was running around. So what happened was because of this, this phase lock loop tower, the lock point would change based on how hot the chips were. Now, it wouldn't change while it's running. It would stay locked. But as soon as you turn it off and then back on again, you'd have to either cool it down or, or tweak it. So I was running around the show with, uh, with a little plastic tweaking tool and a can of freeze spray and looking for marketing people who were constantly taking these things down because, of course, they didn't even have to take it down. You could have pushed a button because it was a 128, but they didn't know. They kept unplugging them because they thought, you know, they were thinking C64. This is the first time they really had much experience with our new system. So we were, I was running around keeping these things going because it was on a tower. We call it a tower. It's, you know, it's one you build a circuit board that plugs into the where your chip used to go. That's called a tower. 
And uh, you could get to it without having to take the system completely apart through the vents in the back of the C-128 and um, or top, actually. And um, so I was doing this the whole show. Uh, we, we ended up going to the uh, Amiga suite with uh, with uh, Dave Needle and RJ. We got to take the uh, A1000 top off. And I would, Bill and I just cracked up laughing because they had a tower sitting on, on top of one of their video, chi- you know, sitting over one of their video chip sockets. And I, I pointed and it's like, hey, we got one of those. <laughs> so <laughs> they had a nice suite, by the way. We were, you know, we, you know, they were they were treated really well by Commodore at that point. I guess that we were, you know, we were in in, in early talks. It was it was pretty cool. I mean, it's just the stuff that they were showing. Even though at that point, most of it were were still the you know the the you know the various things like Robo City and all those were were canned demos at that point. But you know, rather that they weren't quite integrated into the operating system because the operating system wasn't done. You know, there weren't any computers that could do that kind of stuff. So I was immediately intrigued. The first time I actually got my hands on one at all was we had a we had one of the black Zorro prototypes in in Westchester later that year, and it was pretty carefully guarded. And I didn't have any particular reason to be using it or not. They also had these manuals that were handed out. They had the the original ROM kernel manual were, were these with these green books. Um, you had to sign for them, and Bill Hurd had one, and uh, he's he was never very careful with his stuff. And while he was one day when he wasn't there and, and I was, I, I went and photocopied the whole thing so I could learn Amiga. <laughs> I, I didn't hand it off to any evil forces or anything. Oh. <laughs> what was the uh, thing that most impressed you about the Amiga then? Oh, there wasn't any one thing because it was all good. I mean, it was just the, you know, the fact that they were all this DMA going on, that they were, you know, that the graphics were better than I was used to, that the just the computer architecture was great, that the, you know, that they had backed up everything that was done in in, in hardware with good software. It wasn't going to be running a uh, 28 style operating system. It wasn't even going to be running something as bad as as uh, CPM or whatever. They had actually thought all that through. It was just, I mean, every, th- you know, it was like, how, where did this come from? Because, you know, you don't expect something to be completely revolutionary when you're in the business because you know what, you know what, you know, it's always incremental, right? You know, things always get a little bit better. You know, somebody might break through on one piece of a new system. Maybe you've got a, a much better graphics on this machine, but it's still running the same software or whatever. This was everything was changing all at once. Well, obviously, at companies like Apple, there was um, you know quite a well documented um, rival between like the Mac and the Apple II team. I mean, was there anything like that at Commodore with the eight bit and the Amiga teams? Were there, were there any kind of like well, animosity? not really, because basically um, after Bill left, there was uh, two I think two of us in software and two of us in hardware who comprised the eight bit team. Um, I guess you could count Greg Berlin as well because he had done all the eight bit peripherals. He was still doing eight bit peripherals though. But it wasn't, um, you know, it was uh, it was me and Frank Pelea who were left, and we uh, we tried to sell Commodore on a couple variations. We built uh, two slight different variations of a Commodore two fifty six. Um, I proposed just building a stripped down version of the C one twenty eight eighty column mode to make a really really cheap computer for for business automation. I I basically tried everything I could come up with to convince Commodore that they wanted to make another eight bit computer and. They said no, and then they, I was free to go work on Amigas, which is what I wanted to do anyway. <laughs> you moved on to the 500 project. Um, what were the yeah. challenges there? Um, well, I was I was on the 500 project for just about a month. It was, I mean, I already knew the 68,000, and I already knew the Amiga because I, you know, as soon as the as soon as those things became important, I read up on them. So it wasn't it, there wasn't anything really that challenging. In fact, the most challenging thing was finding something useful to do because George wanted to do everything. 
he was good at it. <laughs> so, so, um, you know, it's, you know, I, I understand that from the other end now and, you know, you've got the, the new guy wants to come along and he's going to take a day to do something you could do in an hour. Right. It's tough, uh, for that new guy. So what ended up happening was the idea was that since I was this lone remaining eight bit guy, um, from the low end, I was going to take over the a 500 and whatever needed to be done there. And George Robbins, who of course had been the Z8000 high-end guy, was going to do the 2000 and whatever went on from there. Only George didn't want to give up the A500 because he had been working on it for just about a year, I guess, at that point. So they gave me the A2000. Um, so you know, about a month after I had started on uh, my first uh, Amiga system, I was in charge of the high-end Amiga system. I wasn't completely alone because, of course, George George and, and Bob had done the... Uh, the fat Agnes and all that. So, I mean, they were standing right there along with all the chip guys to answer any questions I had. Well, around that time, I mean, you were quite active in um, communicating with users and uh, developers as well. I mean, you know, even if you look back on Google Groups now, for example, you can find a lot of your posts on there from uh, your Commodore email address from back in the late 80s and early 90s. I mean, did you feel it was quite important to be quite, you know, hands-on with the the community? Yeah, I actually got into that when I was doing the C128 because uh, it was just... um, it was interesting. I was talking to people on CompuServe and people on Bix, and and then um, uh, Fred Bowen and I had a monthly show, sort of so, show on uh, Quantum Link, um, which uh, I really should have invested in. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have known? <laughs> but it was inter- It was interesting because it was just, uh, you know, it was it was a uh, it was a way to find out, you know, what people thought about the stuff you were working on, and so yeah, I mean. Given that I, it was in this consumer market, I, you know, I thought I, I want to keep that going. So when, when Amiga came on, I just kept it going. I, you know, I didn't see any reason not to, you know, as I, you know, as, as we went on and I got it to be, a, you know, a little bit more important engineer and all, I, you know, I did have to occasionally be careful about what I said about management, especially when they were pissing me off. But, um, and I enjoy writing. I mean, I still do it. I just do it on Quora and, or Facebook or whatever, instead of, uh, you know, on Usenet, but. And it's usually not questions about Amigas anymore. <laughs> well, there is um, like a, a service I took a look at recently called um, olduse.net. And what it essentially does, it kind of feeds out Usenet as it was 30 years ago in real time. Um, uh-huh. I joined, I think it was like com.sys.amiga the other day. And there's oh, like, it's, it's, it's feeding it out with a 30-year delay. Huh? Yeah, so you can reply to them, but you <laughs> won't see it for 30 years. But there was a post from oh. you talking about the A500 that came up the other day, so that it must have been a yeah. 30 years ago around now. So. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, <laughs> set the Wayback Machine, Mr. Peabody. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were working on the um, the high-end Amigas at the time. I mean, were you aware yeah. of like what they were doing over here in the UK? Because, I mean, the Amiga was a lot more you know, known as being like a game system in, uh, in the UK and Europe and the demo oh, yeah. scene. Oh, I totally knew about that. Every time I went over to Europe, which was usually Germany, but I did. I actually I went to the UK only once, and that was in '84, uh, I think, for the C128. I, I gave a uh, a talk to the marketing people there about what the C128 was, and unfortunately, fortunately, got to see London for one day, and that was like the whole thing, other than drinking at the Heathrow Airport bar. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it, so I, you know, I, I, yeah, I completely got the whole European scene. I mean, also you knew, you know, you met a lot of people from on Amiga boards and Usenet and all that because, you know, there just weren't that many people. But you know, in the U.S., you had the video people, so I, you know, I knew them as well. It was a completely different set of people and different uses and everything. Did you and, ever think Commodore U.S. should have kind of promoted the Amiga more in that regard in America? Of course they should have. They should have promoted it a lot more. They just didn't. They, I mean, they they never had 
you know, I mean, really what they, they should have done is got one of the, uh, one, one of the European managers to, uh, you know, or maybe all of them to come over here and train somebody or do it themselves because clearly nobody, but I think part of the other problem was that the guy running the U S depart, you know, the U S marketing sales division was never given enough time to really make changes for whatever reason uh, or you know irving or whoever was was like focused on the us more than anything else because things were working in the in the uk and they were working in germany and they were working you know elsewhere they weren't working in the us they're working in canada canada sold almost as many amigas every year as as uh, the the us did and you know that's a, that's a gigantic country with no people in it <laughs> Um, that yeah so i don't you know i don't understand what the problem was and why they could never get their act together i know a little bit of it was that jack had so brutally gone after the uh you know he he had so brutally abused the computer stores with the c64 right you know he he they'd been selling through computer stores and then overnight they were selling through kmart and the prices were so low there that they were they were, that Kmart was selling them for less than uh, the average computer store could buy them for from their distributor. So the you know so those so Commodore became kind of persona non grata amongst computer stores, and I'm not sure they ever really trusted Commodore again. But they certainly could have done a better job. They could have found a way to sell you know the game machines better to promote the games. I mean, because really, when it, cer- certainly when the A500 came out, there was nothing like that on PCs yet. Well, speaking of kind of, you know, Commodore doing things a bit different, I mean, obviously one project that kind of sticks out in my mind from like the early 90s, there was a bit of a first and a groundbreaking system, but really, you know, probably never found its market was the CDTV. I mean, what was your kind of thoughts on that system? I thought it was cool. I I had been pushing, even back in the 8-bit days, I had been pushing Commodore to do some kind of a living room computer because I wanted a computer that was always connected to your TV set. Back in those days, I was thinking mostly about something that could, like, you know, that could that could manage audio for you, that could, you know, could maybe, you know, do phone and messaging and everything. But that never went anywhere. We had a lot of really good ideas. Another guy at Commodore had a, had a thing called a uh, a PIM, it was Personal Information Manager, which would be a small computer that you took with you, that you know that maintained all of your information and everything. And he his his version actually was going to have a small CD drive in it, but. Um, it was essentially a PDA, like you know, ten years before, or at least five years before, uh, you know, Apple did theirs. So I mean, we had a lot of good ideas going around, but the CDTV was a you know was a great idea. That was that actually the weirdness of it was it started in the special projects group. We had this group uh, run by a guy named Don Gilbreth, who actually works at my company now. He was in charge of doing. Um, special projects like could you find a thing that will let you send sell 10,000 computers here or 20,000 computers there that they need like you know do like a LAN for um, uh, school networks or something like that that you know that Commodore could come up with that would allow us to sell a bunch of computers and they so the CDTV kind of came out of those guys and it was the the first one was kind of I mean it was a great idea but it was kind of put together really fast and it wasn't optimized so that's why uh, Headley Davis got involved and did the CDTV CR, which was the cost reduced version. And at that point, you know, they really needed to push it more. But it was the problem then. It was just it was it was starting to compete with game consoles, and it was it was good, but it wasn't great compared to what the game consoles that were starting to come out then. Which of course was solved once you got to the CD32. The problem is the CD32 was more of a games machine. It wasn't you know it wasn't the living room computer we were all after, and it was. You know, Commodore was starting to fall apart at that time. Well, talking of the um, low-end Amiga machines, what did you think of the Amiga 600? 
I, I didn't like it, but mostly because of the way it happened. Um, the, it, there was originally this project that George Robbins was doing called the Amiga 300. That's what he was calling it. And it was supposed to be 50 to $75 lower cost than the um, Amiga 500. And it was going to have a, he had figured out how to do a really cheap built-in gen lock. And I have no idea how it worked, but it was going to be built in. So you could plug your video, you could plug your camcorder directly in or your can't, you know, or your videotape or whatever, and, and have Genlock just built in. That was George's project, and it was coming along pretty well. And I did see the thing all up and running in the lab. And then extra, all that extra stuff that got thrown into the 600. And I know today that's actually kind of an advantage having the memory card and everything. But back then it wasn't, and it was seen as like it was all they were doing was adding extra cost to this system. And that was, and it was also that this guy Bill Sidney's who who had, who had come in as the the, the new vice president was a pc guy and so we saw it as like pushing all this pc stuff into amigas the second thing i didn't like about it was okay make the a600 but no they also had to cancel the a500 at the same time and the a500 was still selling you know in the past the way commodore worked and this it had always worked this way was that you had all these products and sales companies would like you know every every separate country was a separate entity right so you know or country or region so you know, Germany would order would place orders for a certain number of things, and they, you know, and then every country would. And if something didn't get enough orders from those sales companies, it wouldn't get made. They, you know, each company knew what they could sell and what they needed to sell. And so here was the 600, which some people didn't like as much as the 500. Maybe some people like the smaller box or you know hard drive that might be built in if it was that version or whatever. But um, you know, we didn't let the market decide. We just stopped making 600s. I mean, 500s and started, you know, and said, now you have to take the 600. The other problem was that the 1200 was supposed to come out even before the, there was a 600. But because of foot dragging and so uh, more politics within the company, the 1200 was like six months late. And then we they hadn't made enough parts. So what happened was all sorts of people, Amiga people, you know, people who already had 500s didn't buy 600s. They wanted to buy 1200s. They couldn't get them. There were all these 600s. And they hadn't done anything to sell enough people, enough new customers on the 600 to sell it. So it created a big business problem, too. So, I mean, my memories of the 600 are far worse than the actual machine. I mean, it's basically a it's basically a 500 with a PCMCIA slot, right? It's <laughs> yeah. actually a nice little machine. And no it? numpad. That's yeah. the only difference. <laughs> yeah. No number pad. And um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people today, like I said, today, when you, you know, when you have cheap flashcards that can go in there and, you know, it's it sort of makes sense. Um and you know, not that there's anything wrong with that specifically, but it ended up costing fifty dollars more than the five hundred to make. So you had to sell it for more. So you know, a lot of people looked at that and said it's a smaller machine, and what am I getting for this? And of course, there was nothing you could actually do with the memory card when it first came out. So you know, I could understand that. You know, a lot of people looked at that and said, yeah. At the time, I'd just got an Amiga five hundred plus for like Christmas a year before, so it was only about like you know four or five months earlier. Then that got discontinued. But I remember the backlash in the Amiga magazines, and you know I hadn't really seen anything like that before. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think a lot of it had to do with with them coming out saying the six hundred is the replacement for the five hundred, rather than here's this new computer that hey you can buy either one. You know, because everybody loved the five hundred. I loved the five hundred, even though I only worked on it for a month. <laughs> Well, obviously, you know, getting towards the end of Commodore, I mean, kind of their last swan song and their, you know, the last attempt to kind of save the company, I suppose, was the CD32 project. I mean, do you think that was a step in the right direction? I liked the idea of Commodore having a line of game machines. And I think the CD32, fair example of that, I just think that, I mean, if you look at, 
if you look at what happened that last year in the Christmas of 93, they probably could have sold four times as many CD32s as they did for a much higher profit. The problem was Commodore was owed so much money to so many people, they couldn't get parts. They couldn't get custom things made. They had to pay cash for things. They were paying more than they should. And they, you know, they could all, they were only able to make something like a hundred thousand CD 32s. So, you know, maybe I'm not sure at that point, I think part of the problem of, you know, a big part of Commodore's problem at that point was, was structural. Like, you know, we had people who didn't know what they were doing running the company, even though some of them had been fired like Bill Sidney's by then. Um, they're just, you know, what, what are you going to do? Even if even if that had been a very successful Christmas, you know, would it save the company? It's hard to say. I mean, I'd like to believe it would have, you know, but, it, you know, they they didn't make enough of them. So what are you going to say? It's, you know, but I think that was the right step in the right direction. We were also doing that in the next generation. Um, it, you may have heard something about Ombre. Mm-hmm. That was a chip that set, was, yeah? That's a chip. That was a two chip set, maybe with some extra stuff that did... Um, you know, it had a, it had its own built-in PowerPC processor that was designed um, in-house. Um, it had its own graphics system, which was you know chunky graphics, completely different than Amiga. I mean, it took you know it took some Amiga ideas and expanded on them. Like it had, you could have four 16-bit deep play fields. So you know, 16-bit chunky play, chunky pixels, four play fields of that. Um, it had three, you know, the, the PowerPC instruction set had been expanded to include 3D instructions. So you would actually have not like today's GPUs with, you know, thousands of processing units, but for the day, it would have had some pretty, you know, some pretty sweet, uh, you know, 3D graphics potential. Um, that was designed to, with the two chips and maybe, maybe some, uh, you know, some small bit, you know, some low cost IO chips, that would have been your game machine. But then you put that, on a card it spoke pci and it would have been a pretty nice graphics card with its own power pc chip sitting there to run OpenGL or whatever you wanted to run on it you know with the 3d instructions and all so we would have had a pretty good you know pretty good add-in graphics card at the same time and i was at you know from 9091 on i was working on the essentially what you might call the a5000 i was working on the next generation architecture it was kind of funny because Ed Hepler was kind of working in secret on Ombre. I was working mostly in secret, not secret like I wasn't telling anybody about it, just secret because it was one of these Skunkworks projects that wasn't really, you know, it was just like, you know, something I chose to work on. Um, and we had both decided that PCI was the way to go because of the standards, because it actually solved a bunch of problems for, you know, a small pin count, high speed going from chip to chip, that sort of thing. So um we we had we had independently built systems that would have supported each other's uh, new stuff had we gotten that far. And this Ombro chipset would that would that kind of be like a CD sixty four kind of console system then? It, I, yeah, yeah. the The first one would have probably been you know it might have it might I'm not sure there's anything in there that was really sixty four, but that never stopped uh, Sega or anybody else from <laughs> using that word. So um, yeah, it would have been something like that. It would have been you know it would have been a I doubt it was fast enough to emulate an Amiga, but it would have been a, it would have been an upgrade. I mean the the one thing is that uh, game consoles didn't really have to be compatible, didn't have to be backward compatible. I mean you know that's sort of come and gone between generations but you know at that point that would have taken these you know the the uh the a the, the or the cd32 from being a pretty good game machine to wow this is like you know this is like up there with uh you know with with uh sony or 
you know, whoever is making the best machines that day, you know, that particular week. Was it kind of on par with the PlayStation One, like in terms of power then? I I think it would probably be faster in some things and slower on others, but it's hard to say exactly. I think the I think the place I I, I have to look back. It's been so long <laughs> looking at those systems. But you know, same yeah, I think same basic idea plus the CD. Um, you know, obviously you need that you you needed that at that point for the you know for the game capacity. We're quite ready for DVD yet. I know there's like the triple A chipset in between, wasn't there? Which was was that kind of more of a development on the um the more like traditional Amigas then? That was started actually in 1988, but it was it was very big effort. Um, those are the four largest chips Commodore ever made. Uh, it was it was very much an Amiga system. It would not have been fully compatible. At least there's two there's two ways you could build it. You could you could use four chips to build a 32 bit system, or you could use six chips to build a 64 bit system. So you would have had 64 bit graphics. It could support regular DRAM for chip RAM, or it could support VRAM. Not not like today's graphics DDR or whatever. This was the v, the dual ported VRAM that had been in graphics cards back in the you know in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> um, so it was capable of doing. Uh, all kinds of different modes. It had it had um, it had chunky or planar pixel uh, displays. You could have up to ten bit planar displays and uh, sixteen or twenty four bit, eight sixteen or twenty four bit chunky displays. Um, it had the ability to run f- a pixel clock that was separate than the bus clock. So of course you could you could change your you could change your display rate like you know like modern graphics chips do it had it could support four simultaneous pixel clocks so you could still do screen sliding so it did it had some pretty clever ideas in it it had um eight channel sound and you could pan between each channel from left to right rather than just locking the one on left one and right whatever there were a lot of neat stuff i mean there's so much stuff in there maybe you know if we had had if we had an honest budget it could have been finished we could have had those out in 92 instead of double a um, in fact, the reason for AA was that AAA was taking so long. I mean, it didn't boot Amiga OS because Amiga OS wasn't ready to boot on it, but it was up and running. I mean, I had you know, I had displays. I had you know, I was I put a few demos up, and then some of the chip guys went in there and wrote some more demos because they'd been working on this thing for five years and <laughs> wanted to see it do something. Well, you were working on all this neat stuff, but I mean, when did you kind of realize that Commodore's days were over? Then 1991, when I started working on the Amiga 5000 stuff. It was, I was pretty, sh- I mean, you know, I, it was one of those where if they don't fix things, it's, it's over with. I mean, that's, you know, I started deciding, you know, I, like I have to do something to, or I'm just either going to leave or go insane. Um, so that's when I started working on the, on the A5000 stuff for that chipset was called the Cushiator. That was just, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't graphics. It was just the, you know, like Gary and, and Ramsey and all that, that held the system together. But that was modularized too, because one of the things I found, in, in you know it, it, by that point at Commodore was you know part of our problem was that when we change one thing we kind of have to change everything and that's good when you're trying to build the cheapest possible systems but it starts to become a problem when you want to um, change one thing at a time um, and so I, w- I wanted to get away from making things too integrated unless you could fit it all in one chip so you know it was there you know but anyway that was that was the kind of stuff i was thinking up while commodores was starting to burn (laughs) (laughs) well when they did eventually go under i mean you grabbed a camera and obviously recorded the famous deathbed vigil documentary on the final few days i mean how did those final few days of commodore feel 
Well, that was that was actually Commodore lasted another month after that in Westchester, and it and it kind of went all summer. But it was, I mean, it was really sad. It was like so. What basically that that the first you know the first day. So I had been they had been telling us you better you know you bet you we don't think things are going to last. You better you better look around. So I had I had I had accepted. I was always getting job offers at that point. I had accepted a, an interview with one company out in out in Texas that sounded interesting. And basically, in order to make them not have to pay the whole trip, I also got an interview at, at uh, Compaq. But I had very little hope for Compaq, so I, I went to Compaq, and it was like crazy. They had ten people doing doing what like one person at Commodore would do, and not necessarily better. Um, but anyway, um, so I got so actually the reason I had my camcorder in my car was I had um, I had taken a few videos of Texas just to show my wife. I still had the camera in there, and I still had like a bunch of charged batteries because for reasons known only to some deep seated part of my brain i never go out without like a full set of batteries uh, <laughs> and so i would stop by kmart and they had tapes so i bought a couple of eight millimeter tapes if they hadn't had that there would have been no death that vigil but i so i then decided to walk through the empty factory and start filming things and somewhere along somewhere during that day i kind of figured out that i was making a film but it hadn't started out that way and even even after it was done i wasn't really sure what i was going to do with it i thought it was more of a home movie but i had my friend dale larson who had started a small publishing company at that point who convinced me that I, this is something people are going to want to see. And he managed to sell like 3000 of them. So I guess it was true. Um, anyway, you can find it on YouTube for free now. I met a guy the other day that said he'd actually taken all his Amigas to Saudi Arabia and he had the deathbed visual as uh, a vigil as a VHS and the security had stopped him and said, what's this deathbed visual? And they oh, no. <laughs> they went back and they sat there and they yeah. watched it for 10 minutes and then gave it back to him and said, you're a very weird guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I actually, you know, it was it was Randall and uh, a couple other people who came up with the name of the party. I didn't, I, you know, so that had to be the name of the film. You know, I, you know, I didn't, I, it wasn't my particular intention, but it worked out fine. <laughs> well, looking back at Commodore, I mean, what would you say was Commodore's greatest achievement? Um... I don't know this. I, you know, I think, I mean, overall, I think just the, you know, the, the Amiga, you know, I, if anything, it's the fact that, you know, that we, we built this community through the computer that's still around because it's like, you know, every, I mean, you know, particularly for me, you know, you don't expect, you know, when you're engineering, you, you know, the thing you're building this year is going to get replaced next year. Right. And so, you know, there's no particular reason to believe that a bunch of people would be using Amigas today. You know, I go to I've gone to a couple shows over the past couple of years. People come up to me and say, oh, I'll give it work for you guys. I wouldn't have a job. You know, that's I mean, to me, that's the you know, because that's the thing that lasts um, still lasts for some reason. People people are even starting to make new Amigas, which I I might have to get one. Well, you mentioned about new developments there. I mean, what do you think of stuff like the, the vampire? Have you seen that? I love the vampire. I don't have a computer that can use it yet, but I'm trying. I have a 1200. I'm trying to get running again. <laughs> but um, I love that. I mean, that's see one of the problems I had with um, you know, with Commodore at the end, particularly was that you know, there's nothing I could have done to, you know, to have allowed people to keep it going. You know, they've figured it out. But you know, the nice thing about that is that you've got now a CPU that's faster than any 68,000 that's ever been made that's in an FPGA, right? So it never goes away because they're always going to have FPGAs. They'll have better ones every year, you know, and they, and it's it's actually a pretty modern processor. I mean, it's like it kicks ass compared to uh, running stuff on a on some of those power PCs that are out there. 
you know and i you know i kind of like i like the idea of people making real amigas using real amiga parts or you know or you know real hardware not emulating the whole thing i also like the idea of it not i mean i was kind of surprised how cheap they were when they came out i mean considering how you know what a small batch these things are being made in that you know i mean i know trevor's been you know trevor uh you know came out with these hugely expensive uh the uh, the the whole power pc line and he's trying you know he's trying and i you know i give him credit for that but um you have to get it down to some point because that was that's you know especially in the you know especially in europe that's what we were known for there right you know mm-hmm. this was this was a super powerful computer that was affordable and did everything you wanted it wasn't like you know it was it wasn't something that was a stratospheric price only for a few people so you know, I like I like the idea that you know that the vampire is around, but you know, I, ultimately, I think somebody's going to have it's going to have to be some. You know, you can't run Amigo S three point one or three point eight or whatever, whatever the latest that was officially released forever. Can you? Maybe, maybe. Uh, you know, I kind of hope things like Eros um, would would catch on and you know and, and get more people into it. But you know, these things always they always seem to work themselves out somehow. Well, I think it is amazing that the Amiga's still got this, you know, really strong community in many ways, you know, probably stronger than ever in terms of like, you know, people getting together online and um, rediscovering their passion for this machine. I mean, you know, Ravi and I have been lifelong Amiga fans and, you know, without the work that you guys did at Commodore, we wouldn't have met each other. We wouldn't be doing this podcast. So, you know, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it, yeah, I mean, it's and it's it's still kind of weird that, you know, that, you know, because, uh, you know, I haven't really been known for anything that important since uh, since Commodore. <laughs> Nothing that lasted long enough either, I guess, is part of the problem. But, you know, when you're making, you know, you're designing, I mean, I design ARM computers today, but I'm designing them for, uh, you know, for things that go inside radios that are used in uh, places that people don't want to go to. So, um, you know, harsh environments or football stadiums or whatever. So, um, you know, it's not something that an average person's ever going to know about. And it's not something that's really going to inspire people either, which is the one thing I, you know, that kind of came as a shocker over time, at least from Amiga. But, you know, I know how I, you know, that was one of those things, you know, you think about it, like, you know, when a new version of Amiga OS came out or whatever, or a new Amiga computer came out or whatever, you would like, wow, this is exciting. And you'd read everything about it and you'd jump on it and you'd get online or whatever and you talk to people about it. And it's like, you know, things aren't that exciting anymore. But you know the, the you know there's so many people doing so much on this stuff. It's you know it's it really you know it kind of gives me uh, you know makes my heart a little warm because it's like oh all these guys are still trying to you know trying to keep it alive, trying to you know as, as uh, RJ used to say, trying to keep the faith. And long may it continue. Well, Dave, listen, it's been amazing talking to you and getting your stories. Uh, yep. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. International Festival for the Business of Podcasting is back. The Podcast Show London will bring together thousands of podcast creators under one roof on the 22nd and 23rd of May. Also featuring major industry players, global brands and some of the most iconic voices in podcasting. Plus creator meetups, networking and an evening festival of unmissable live shows. Passes from £89. Book yours now at thepodcastshowlondon.com. Podcast Show London.